0: Hi, thanks for joining us as we go to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 26, and our study of the wilderness wanderings. Uh, as often mentioned, if by chance you didn't get notes or you're looking for notes, you can always email or contact the church office, and we gladly send you a PDF copy of those notes so that you can print them off and follow along if you'd like. Uh, as we go to Numbers 26, we're in a, a very unique section, one that a few people said to me, how are you going to get anything out of the census? Well... I don't have to pull anything out. The Lord, just in his word, gave us some really great truths to follow along. And I hope that today will be encouraging but also challenging to you as it has been to me as we go through Numbers 26. Growing up, I really enjoyed uh, books by an individual and author named Raul Dahl. Now, a number of his books have been made into movies. The Big Friendly Giant or BFG, Matilda, James and the Giant Peach, and probably one of his most known Uh, Books that's been made into a movie is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, depending on which generation you're from. And you can argue over which one is better, the old one or the new one. I personally like the new one, even though I love the old one as well. But I'm a fan of the new one. But if you know the story, the story is about these children from all over the world who are, everybody's trying to win these golden tickets by opening up candy bars and the winner gets to come, the, the five winners get to come to the factory and they get a lifetime supply of chocolate and they're all excited for that. And these five different children all win and, uh, end up coming to the, to the factory. And through the whole process of the story, we find that, uh, because they had signed an agreement and they made an agreement with, uh, the owner of the factory, Willy Wonka, they would, if they did things that were wrong, certain things, they would forfeit the blessing of that lifetime supply of chocolate. Well, as the story unfolds, four of the five children actually forfeit that blessing of diabetes for the rest of their life, or the, the lifetime supply of chocolate. Uh, they forfeit that because of the, the struggles, their unfaithfulness, their vices that they battle with. And they end, up, uh, they end up leaving the factory without all those blessings, except for the one child, Charlie, who uh, in the end was faithful. And he did what was right and received those blessings from Willy Wonka, not even the just all the chocolate, but the factory itself. And the, and the story continues and goes on. But the story reminds us and reminds us about the a great warning about the struggles of the vices and the sins and the unfaithfulness in our lives. And as I was thinking about the story, it really, while well, I was thinking about Numbers 26, it really reminded me of that story. I should say it that, that way. Because when you, when you think about it, the children of Israel were promised great blessings through Abraham. We remember that from Genesis chapter 17, where there, there's going to be many children, there's going to be blessings, there's going to be a land. And we are reminded of God's faithfulness to Abraham uh, as, as 70 go into Egypt. And then millions come out of Egypt. And we see those blessings that occurred uh, and that were promised to him. But these children, the children of Israel, were unfaithful. And because they were unfaithful, they had this unfulfilled hope in their life, longing for the land, longing to go in, but they had forfeited their right to enter in. We know that from Numbers 14 at Kadesh Barnea, where that happened, where they did not trust God for his providence, his protection, his provisions. And there was that lack of trust that occurred there. And the people died because of their faithlessness, their sin, and God's judgment upon sin. And so Numbers records that journey of unfaithfulness to, uh, with the children of Israel. And as we look at numbers and we see the unfaithfulness, we also know that there is some blessings. We know that it's going to move, move on. In fact, as we come to numbers chapter 26, we come to this point where the journey is now going to really pick up speed again. It is that moment where it's, it's the hinge in the book we 've taken two thirds of the book, and now there 's going to be a moment where it changes course, it changes direction, and now that second census is going to is going to happen. Nearly forty years have elapsed since Fort chapter fourteen all the way to chapter twenty six and Now, as you look in verse six or verse one of chapter twenty six it says that the Lord spoke to Moses and Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saying, "Take the sum of the congregation of the children of Israel from twenty years old and upward." throughout their father's house and all that are able to go to war. Moses and Eleazar the priest spake with them in the plains of Moab by Jordan near Jericho saying, take the sum of the people from 20 years old and upward as the Lord commanded Moses and the children of Israel, which went forth out of the land of Egypt. So God tells Moses, Hey, just like you did back in chapter one, I want you to do the same thing now, 20 years old and upward. This is a military census. Only big difference is Aaron's not around anymore. You're going to take Eliezer, the high priest, and the two of you are going to do this census. So what is the product of this census? The rest of this chapter, a good portion of this chapter, is dedicated to the the naming of the tribes, the naming of the the clans within the tribe, and then the number that is given to them. How many uh, warriors are available in each tribe. Uh, from that. And so you look through and you can look right through on the screen. You see number Reuben is in from verses five through 11. They totaled 43,730 people, which was a loss from the first census of 2,700 people. And that's what I'll put up on the screen here for you. You'll see the, the number and then the plus or minus. Did they grow? Or did they lose Did they lose? in fact, you look at the next one, Simeon verses twelve to fourteen they only had twenty two thousand two hundred. They lost thirty seven thousand one hundred people we 'll come back to that in a second. Gad forty thousand five hundred lost five thousand people. Uh, now remember that 's the, the five thousand fighting men. It could be more in the clan, but from that, that perspective Judah they gained one thousand nine hundred people in fact they 're the largest of the of all the tribes leaving Leaving the promise or leaving the wilderness, headed to the promised land. Issachar gained almost 10,000 fighting troops. Zebulon, another 3,000 plus. Manasseh, 20,000 plus added to their tribe. Simi, uh, Ephraim, 8,000 lost. Now, there's an interesting dynamic here. We'll talk about Manasseh and Ephraim. We'll come right back to that in a moment here. Benjamin. The little tribe of Benjamin actually gains 10,000 people. Even though they're still a smaller tribe, they're, they're, they gain 10,000. Dan gains 1,700. Asher gains almost 12,000. And then Naphtali, they lose at 8,000. So when all is said and done from the first census to the second census, you now have a grand total of 601,730 people with a net loss of 1,820 people, which if you really think about it, it's pretty amazing. Wandering through a wilderness for 40 years where it's just a desolate place, God has faithfully brought this group of people. We definitely see God's faithfulness in this. We see that he, is a, he now has a nation still to bring into the land, reaffirming that promise that he made to Abraham about the innumerable descendants that, he's, that he is going to provide him to inherit the land that was promised to them. And God's faithfulness occurs even through the most desolate of times. And we see that happen in the book of Numbers. Now, that's the, the general product, the overview. We, could, we can dive into all the different names. You can read through them yourselves. Don't overread into names and go, ooh, I wonder if there's some mystical meaning. No, it's, part of it is a historical accounting for us to know and for Israel to know who was present and what was necessary. And we'll talk about why it was necessary in a moment. There's some peculiarities to this census compared to the first census, okay? Though there's similarities, there's some definite differences. And the biggest difference, I mean, other than is doing instead of Aaron, because Aaron's passed away now, the biggest one comes down in verse verse number uh, 28. In verse 28, you have the sons of Joseph after their families were Manasseh and Ephraim. Now in the first census every other every other tribe is in the exact order that it's been throughout the book and throughout that census except in this case manasseh and ephraim are switched in the first census the seventh tribe listed was ephraim and the eighth tribe listed was manasseh now commentators are split they talk about why did this happen why is there a switch here? Is it because Manasseh now has the larger number? Remember, they had that, that huge growth of 20,000 plus people. So is it because they're now larger than Ephraim? Is it because Manasseh is greater in importance? Well, that, that battles with Genesis chapter 48 where, where Ephraim is going to be the greater greater of the nations, not greater in number, but greater of importance that lays out from the blessing from Jacob to Joseph's children. Remember, Joseph wasn't happy with that because Joseph wanted his oldest, Manasseh, to have that extra blessing. But but Jacob gives that to uh, Ephraim. So is it is it because of that? I don't think that jives with scripture. Could there be another reason why? Now. We don't we don't really understand or get into all the extra specifics, putting things in priority and ultimate importance. But in that Hebrew culture, there's there is that possibility that the seventh position is something of importance. If you wanted to make an emphasis on something, you added like in that seventh spot. It was important to them and how they how they conveyed information. And notice down in verse number 33. Verse number 33 is just, it's very out of place. It says, "In Zelophehad, the son of Hepher had no sons but daughters, and the names of the daughters of Zelophehad were Mahiah, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. That's just a mouthful to say. But you look at and and you, you hear that, and you're like, wait, we're in the middle of a military census highlighting the men who are able to fight why do we have in the middle here a listing of these ladies not men so Zalafa had had no fighting men in the family but now we have these these ladies who are listed and, and why is that? Was Moses drawing attention to this unique uh, portion for this tribe? I believe he was. And we'll talk about it more as we get into the next chapter. The, what's interesting is the daughters Delo- the of Zelophehad. That is, wow, that's going to be fun to try and say next time. But the Daughters of Zelophehad, the mentioning of those women just in the midst of this account is simply remarkable. It heightens, it highlights the importance of women in the camp. And they were not just trampled on or left to the side. There is an importance, and we'll see that next time. Uh, And you just draw a little circle there. It's interesting. But chapter 27 is where they'll be heard from again. What is Moses doing? I believe that as he, he, he inverts those, he's drawing attention to something unique that's happening in Manasseh. And he's going to expound upon it in just a little bit. Now, we won't get to that today. We'll get to it next time. But just reference that. So there's, there's that little peculiarity in the census that is there. Another reason, another part of the census is the preparation for war. We know that it is a military census. It says, number the men who are able to fight from the ages of 20 and upward. So it is a military census. Moses, remember, at the end of chapter 25, He is told by God, you are going to go against the Midianites. You're going to vex them. You're going to go to battle. So now there is this call to arms because they are now stepping up and going in. As well, the nation, even though it will not be under Moses' leadership, when they enter into the promised land, it is going to be a time that has been labeled the conquest and settlement. And that's an important term for you as you're reading through commentaries, you're reading through different articles. You'll hear that term, conquest and settlement. And it's really the whole time of Joshua and into Judges where they're, they're taking over the land, the promised land, And they're settling in as a nation to the promised land. But it's going to be a time for battle. So they had to prepare militarily for that moment. The nation now has come full circle from Numbers 14, where they were not allowed to enter in. Now they are ready to enter in. Now it is time to go. And now it they were thinking they were going to go to battle. They chose not to. They chose not to trust in God. Now the nation is ready to go now they 're saying it is time we are going to move forward by faith because we 've learned from that first generation and let 's let 's go forward What is the, the the promise of the inheritance? Part of the census highlighted the promise of God to the inheritance uh, for the inheritance to the people look down in fifty three verse fifty three through fifty five you 'll notice it says unto these, the land shall be divided for inheritance. Who's the these? It's all the tribes and all the, all the clans and all the people that he has just talked about in the census and all of their families. He says, unto these, the land shall be divided for an inheritance, according to the number of names. So God is looking and through Moses, he's writing and saying this, this Inheritance. In the next couple verses here, inheritance is going to be used or inherit is going to be used five different times in three verses. It's an important term here. There's an important dynamic that there is something for them to take and not only just take, but they are going to possess it. It will be theirs to, to have. According to the lot, shall they possess or shall the possession thereof be divided between the many and the few? So that is something that they are going to own. It is going to be rightfully theirs, given to them by God for them to hold on to God promises the people He promises the people that they are that this, and now theirs to inherit the land is now theirs to inherit, so it is for them and why the inheritance? What is so important? The journey is not done for Israel. They still have warfare, battles to endure to conquer. And the journey is not complete for for years to come, for a few more years, I should say. And you look at it and say, why is it important to know that this is our land, that this is our inheritance? One, it's going to strengthen them to know what they're fighting for. It is theirs to, to have. But in the midst of the journey, the inheritance, it brings hope. It brings the ability to rise up, to go forward, to stand strong in the midst of chaos, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of battle. It's very similar to us today. What gives you strength in the midst of your spiritual journey, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of the spiritual battles? It's knowing that there is a greater inheritance, knowing that this world is not my home knowing that there is something far greater, that he that's begun a good work in me will continue to perform it. He is going to mature me. He is going to help me through the battles. But ultimately, one day I will have that home in heaven that God is preparing for me, that place that I will be able to enter. And for those of you who are believers, the same exact truth. What can get you through the difficult times, through the journeys? It's knowing that there's an inheritance Well, there's that promise of inheritance, but there's also in the census given to Moses and the the people, the practical division of the inheritance or of the land. You'll notice that down, we're following up where we just read in 54. To the many thou shalt give the more inheritance and to the few thou shalt give the less inheritance. To every one of his inheritance be given according to those that were numbered of him, notwithstanding the Lord shall, or the land, excuse me, shall be divided by lot according to the names of the tribes of the fathers, they shall inherit. So God is going to divide and govern the division of the land basically on two principles. The first one is the principle of proportion. Now, people will look, and in our culture especially, well, this isn't fair. Life's not fair. We know it. But this isn't fair. Look, why? everybody should get equal proportion. You know, those who have more should, should give so that those who have less can have the equal amount. And we hear that all the time. But what does God say here? How does God divide this land up? He doesn't say we're going to give every of the, all 12 tribes the equal land allotment. He says, we're going to give it in proportion to their size. So we're going to divide it. The tribes that are bigger, they're going to get more inheritance. So the census is important here. So we know that Judah being the biggest tribe is going to get the most land. The second Manasseh, the biggest tribe is going to get the most land. Some of the other tribes, they don't get as much land, but they get better land. You get, you get up into Issachar and Zebulun. Their, their land isn't huge, but it's the Jezreel Valley. It is lush. It is good quality land where it can, serve, it can support more people in a smaller area. So all of these different areas are divided proportionately, giving the good land, giving the larger amounts of land to the tribes that, that were larger and less to the less. And God, God governs it by that principle of proportionality. There's also a principle of providential possibility, now, it sounds weird. It sounds like, what are, you, what are you getting at? Providential possibility. If it's providential, it's decreed. It's oversaw. Then how can there be possibility? Well, they divided it. Did you notice it says that they divided the lands, verse 55, divided by lot. So as the lots were shaken, as the lots were, were tossed, it was a common understanding for the people of that day. We don't, we don't practice this now. This is something that happened. It's not happening. And as the lots were cast, there was an understanding that God is decreeing, God is dividing the spoils. And they would even be used for the spoils of war. So the Lord was presumed to oversee the tossing of the lots uh, to bring his decision to pass. So as the people looked and said, okay, the lot falls so that our family, our clan gets this land. They didn't argue about that. They said, this is the land that God wants us to have. They accepted the providential oversight of what God has decreed through the lots. And so some would be here, some would be there, and there wasn't, there wasn't this argument. One of the commentators wrote it this way. He said, the entire land belongs to God alone. So the allocation methods chosen by God constituted God's gift to his people. He says, I'm giving you this land that you didn't have to do anything for. It is my gift to you. And the procedure would be considered equitable and avert potential jealousies and dissensions." the tribes gladly took their land. They were longing for a permanent home, a permanent place that they could dwell in, that they could enjoy. And so they gladly accepted. They didn't whine and bicker and argue over the fact that something wasn't fair. They took the land that God had designed and given to them through that. Now, as we look at that census, I love the quote by Mark Twain, where he he talks about that history does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. He looks and says, you know, we're, we can repeat history, but he says history doesn't identically repeat itself, but there are so many similarities that if we learn from history, we're not going to repeat it. We shouldn't be repeating it. So think about it in, re, in regard to the nation here. This is not an entirely new nation. It's a new generation, but the promises of God, the covenants that have been made between God and the nation and the nation and God, the, the, the promises, all of that, the laws... They still remained. It's not a brand new thing that God's doing, but he is creating a new generation to to follow after in the footsteps. So Moses is going to use, in the midst of the, the census here, he's going to use these little historical snippets. He's going to say, hey, remember this? What does it remind you of? What does it teach us? And he uses it to prepare the children to enter into the promised land. There's gonna be these warnings that are given to them. So Moses draws attention to a few major events in the history of Israel. And we are reminded through those events that God certainly judges sin. God will judge sin. And we need to remember that as we go through here and we look at some of these snippets that that are uniquely placed by Moses and by God in the census a census that is designed just to count people to remind us of some of the warnings that God has about judging sin and about sinfulness. Now we can, we can easily do what I, you know, Israel could have done what is happening in America today. The erasing of history, the erasing of the negative things that have happened in our past because we don't like them or a certain group doesn't like them. We have to look and say, you know when we look at our society, there are things, there are atrocities that have happened. It doesn't mean that they are happening or they should happen. But we don't erase them from our past, because if we erase them. If we erase them from the past, then the future generations have the potential of not learning from them. And so God and Moses use these moments. These little snippets to remind Israel for future generations of the danger, the destruction, the warning of sin, and that God will judge sin. So let's look at those. Look in verse number one. I mean, it's just right away it hits. Verse number one says, after, and it came to pass after the plague, the plague at Baal Peor. Now, this is not just a transition statement, although it does transition us from 20, 25 to 26. It is all that was really needed to freshen that wound. The, the wound that says our physical and our spiritual immorality brought upon us a plague that, that brought 24,000 people to death. And the, do you remember the individual Zimri, who in chapter 25, he was a Simeonite. Now, what's interesting is as a Simeonite, what do we, what do we just see about the Simeonites. The numbers in the census, in the first census, they had 59,300 people. In the second census, they had 22,200. That is a huge loss. Why? I almost sounded like Trump and said huge. It's a a huge loss for this nation. It's the largest decline of any tribe. Could it be? Could it be that the plague of chapter 25 was mainly in the area of Simeon? There's a, I think there's a strong possibility that it impacted that area so much and they suffered the greatest, the greatest losses. It could be, I, don't, I can't prove from the scriptures directly, but Moses highlights that it was Simeon, individual from the tribe of Simeon who received the spear from Phineas. We, we see that. And then Simeon loses that huge amount. What's interesting is, do you remember? The nation only lost 1,800 people net if they would have stayed faithful to God in chapter 25 with Baal Peor, there would have been 22,000 more potential fighting men, 24,000. Or even if it's half of that, even if some women died and it was, but they would have been well over. But because of the lack of faithfulness by the people, there was punishment and God dealt, dealt with that sin. And so that happens. Now look down in verse number nine. 9, 10, and 11. There's another snippet that, dr- that just draws your mind back. When we get to, to the tribe of Reuben, and there's a, lot, there's a lot on the tribe of Reuben, but look in verse number 9. It says, uh, And the sons of Eli, Nemuel, Datham, and Abiram. And then he says, this is the da- that Datham and Abiram, which were famous or infamous, <laughs> in the congregation who strove against Moses and against Aaron in the company of Korah, when they strove against the Lord and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah. When the company died, what the, what time the fire devoured 250 men and they became a sign. Do you remember that back in chapter 16? How interesting that in the middle of this, what's to be a mundane sentence or census, you have this story reminding you to go back saying, Hey, remember that Remember the situation where Korah, Datham, and Abiram, they rebelled against God's leaders? Where they Yes, Korah is from the tribe of Levi, but Datham and Abiram, they're from this tribe of Reuben. And the result of them provoking the Lord, which was in chapter 16, verse 3, was that they were, 30, was swallowed up by the earth. Israel was to remember that contending with those placed over us is not only considered rebellion against leaders, but against God himself. And that's going to be important for them because... In just one chapter, we're going to have a transition in leadership in Israel. It's going to move from the man who has led them out of Egypt and through the wilderness to this new man, Joshua. So it's important for them to remember what it was like and the not to rebel against those leaders. The fact that we are still enamored by this story, to me, I mean, it is a sign for Israel, but it is still one of those stories like, oh, do you remember that story about someone getting swallowed up in the earth? And those those individuals who the censors were were beaten out and put around the altar and they were assigned, all of this was designed to throughout Israel's history point them back to say, remember the lesson that God is going to judge those who rebel against his leaders, that God is going to judge those who are not faithfully following who God has established in their lives. God deals with sin. And so there's this warning that occurs. Verse 19, there's a third warning. There's a third warning that occurs, and you could just gloss over this, but look at what it said. The sons of Judah were Ur and Onan. And, excuse me, and Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And then they, he goes on to his other sons after that. But why, why this little snippet? Why this, this historical vignette that's put here? These two sons of Judah, they didn't even get out of the land. Now, if you go back to Genesis and you read the, the account that, that occurs there, and uh, I think it's 46 or 38, sorry, you'll, th- it is one of the weirdest accounts of, of sin and everything that's happening. And you can go back and read it, but Judah's not doing well before the Lord. Ur is definitely not, and Onan is not. They're all, Onan and Ur, verses 30, uh, verse 7 and verse 10 of chapter 38 in Genesis, It says that they did wicked. They were wicked before the sight of the Lord. And what happens to those individuals? They were struck down. They were put to death because the payment, the wage of sin is death. Through all generations, there is judgment upon sin. And so as they're going through and they're hearing like, the sons of Judah were Ur and Onan. Oh yeah, they didn't even get out of the land of Canaan. Why? Because of their sinful wickedness. It didn't, it, not just in the wilderness. God dealt with sin and wickedness in the past. God deals with it in the present. He will deal with it. I, so he's looking and saying, take the warning, Israel. Remember, Do you be righteous. You fulfill your responsibilities. That was part of the issue with Ur and Onan. As they were, they were enjoying all the pleasures of, without fulfilling their righteous responsibilities that they had uh, in being kinsmen redeemers. And you can, you can go through that passage sometime. A fourth warning, go to chapter, or verse 60. You, you, a number of the censuses happen, you get to verse 60. And remember, the tribe of Levi is not with the initial census. Why? Because they are not going to receive a por- portion of the land. They're also not going to go into military battle. So though they are going to be numbered here differently, the tribe of Levi in uh, verses uh, 60 and and following, right in there. uh, Verse 57 and following, sorry I had it highlighted wrong. From verse 57 on, you're going to see them highlighted, but they're not part of that initial sentence because they're not receiving... Uh, land portions. They're going to receive city allotments and they're not going to military battle. So they're not in the military census. So that occurs in the, in the 57 through 62. But notice in the, right in the middle, verse 60, 61. And Aaron was born, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. 59 is really an interesting verse too. That's a, it's a verse just to remind you some of the historicity of where everyone came from. The name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who her mother bare to Levi in Egypt, and she bare unto Amram, Aaron, Moses, and Miriam. So that's where we learn who Moses' parents were, a little bit more highlighted back to that Exodus chapter two account. But unto Aaron was born Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar. And Nadab and Abihu, verse 61, died. When they offered strange fire before the Lord, so now you have this account from uh, Leviticus chapter ten, where they they offer inappropriate sacrifice or fire before the Lord. We talked through that in one of our previous messages uh, on the topic. Was it because they were drunk? Probably partially. Was it because they brought maybe fire that wasn't from the altar of incense and did it correctly as God had just established? Quite possibly, all of that together brought forward and said, no, God says that you are going to worship me the way I say to worship. And he brings forth the fire from heaven and consumes them before the whole congregation. And these men failed to worship according to God's command. And I have to think, if the firstborn, the first two born of the high priest of Israel were judged for their sin, I got to say, hmm, does God take seriously sin for any person? It is a warning for Israel, for the Levites, those who are going to be in ministry, for those who are outside of the Levites, for everyone, you come to worship God the way God calls us to worship. We come to God the way that God designs, not the way that man designs, not the way that we just want, but we look and say, what does God's word say about how we approach him, how we come before him? How we worship him. And so they're given that that warning. The fifth warning is found in verse sixty four as the as the census chapter wraps up. But among these, all of the census, there was not a man of them whom Moses and Aaron the priest numbered when they numbered the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. It's a sad verse. It's a verse also of hope. Because now you know that God's word is fulfilled. God is going to move forward. That something great is about to happen, but it's on a sad note because you're reminded of the unfaithfulness of these individuals. You're reminded that there is no one left in the second generation from the first. That the sin of the first generation, think about this, impacted every single family. There was not a single person in the entire nation of Israel who was not impacted or touched by the sins of those individuals whether it was a family member who died in a great plague or a rebellion, someone who died because of a snake bite, somebody who died because of their complaining, because they got nauseous from eating the the quail too much, someone who died by natural causes, but because they were part of that older generation that was not faithful and rebelled. There was not a single family all the way through. Moses even has to say goodbye to his brother. He has to see his sister. Go. Everybody was touched by sin. And what an impacting thought about our sinful choices. They impact. They impact family. They impact friends. They impact community and church. It's not just a a bygone, just no big deal. I'm just an island unto myself. Our choices have consequences. God justly deals with the the unfaithfulness of believers in all places, in all times, no matter one's position or status. Think about that. It does not matter if you are from the first generation or the second generation. It does not matter if you are a Levite or if you are from the tribe of Reuben. It does not matter if you're firstborn or not. It does not matter that if you, you think you ought to have a position or not. It did not matter status. It did not matter authority structure. We look through Israel's history. And God says it doesn't matter because sinfulness is dealt with through humanity. Humanity deals with sinfulness and God deals with sinfulness. And so therefore all of us as humans are facing the judgment of God because because of our sinfulness. That's why we need the Redeemer. That's why we needed Jesus Christ to come to die on the cross, to provide for us that beautiful hope of salvation because I can't do it myself because sinfulness has plagued my life and yours. But it doesn't matter. It could be back in the land of Canaan before you even went to Egypt with Ur and Onan. It doesn't matter the place, the location. God deals with sinfulness. And so now you think about this next generation that's going into the promised land. As this next generation moves forward by faith, entering into the promised land, can they enter the land? Can they claim the inheritance and the possessions that God has given to them, that he has provided? Will they remain faithful or will they succumb to the pressures, the fears, the temptations, the struggles? Will they trust in God in the journey or are they going to go after false gods like Baal Peor? And you look and you say, wow, this is heavy for them. There's an intense warning as they're going forward to stay faithful to God. Absolutely. Well, how are they going to do this? How are they going to remain? And what is really interesting in this text is not only that when you, when you look at it all as a whole, not only does Moses and God give you some warnings toward living unrighteously, but he is going to provide some hope. God does not simply give warnings in the passage. He offers hope to this next generation because God's lavish grace really is our greatest hope. Knowing that his mercy and his grace are are just recklessly poured out upon us. Not a reckless in a, in a just a flippant, he doesn't care what happens, but he just, he, he doesn't hold it back. James talks about with wisdom that he doesn't abrade or he doesn't hold it back. He lavishly pours it out. The same is true for his grace. The marvelous grace of our Lord is manifest in so many different ways. Look back Look back in the passage with me. Look back to, to Baal Peor. Remember the situation there? In chapter 25 in verse number uh, eight, you see that when uh, Phineas goes in and he skewers the individual's The plague was stayed from the children of Israel. That plague was intended for all of Israel. And yet God says, because of the righteousness and the zeal of Phinehas, I'm stopping the plague. His grace and his mercy extended to the rest of the nation. Yes, 24,000 died, but millions did not. God was gracious in that moment. And they can remember that, wait, God didn't destroy us all. God mercifully and graciously provided for us. Do you remember in the story of Datham and Abiram and Korah? You look down in verse verse number 9 and 11 in chapters, uh, 9 through 11 in chapter 26. Notice at the verse verse 11, notwithstanding the children of Korah died not. Now, when we left chapter 16, it seemed, and the assumption would be, well, I guess all, all of Korah's, everybody from Korah is going to get wiped out too. But if you remember, there were little snippets in there that talked about those who stood, those who, who remained with Korah. They were going to be destroyed. They were going to be killed. And God in his mercy does not kill off all of the children of Korah. In fact, it even goes further. The mercy, the grace of God with this particular clan this little section of Levites with Korah and their children. God's grace took this family that was under a deserved death sentence and he redeems their offspring. He takes the children. He takes some of the others who he did not kill the children. He dealt with the adults. He dealt with those who were actively rebelling against. But what did he do with those children? We find out in 1 Corinthians, or Chronicles and then throughout the Psalms, he took these individuals and they fulfilled their Levitical roles in the future generations. But they became men who sung and wrote psalms for us. In fact, Psalm 42, 44 through 49, 84, 85, 87, 88. All of those psalms written either by the sons of Korah, same Korah, or sung by. And they were written for them to sing. They, become, they became active leaders Worshiping God the way God designed them to worship. Read through those Psalms sometime and reflect on, wow, look at these individuals who wrote them or these were written for them. And they, were, they deserved a death sentence. But God in his rich and grace, abundant grace and his lavish mercy redeemed these people and look at their relationship and their worship of their holy and majestic and righteous God. It's a beautiful study to read through the Psalms of Korah, keeping that in mind, because God's grace is marvelous. It brings hope. If he can redeem a a group that he swallowed up the parents who actively rebelled against him, who he consumed their other people with fire, and he can redeem them and make them righteous and use them in worship and and serving to God, he can do the same for us. And he does. Look at the third one with Ur and Onan. Now this one takes a little bit more, not directly in the text, but a little bit more of the biblical history of the tribe of Judah. In spite of the terrible start by the father, by the sons, what happens? We now see that their descendants, the largest tribe that's going to go into the promised land, their descendants are going to be the ones who are going to be chosen for the kingship of Israel that David is going to come out of their lineage. And ultimately beyond that, it's going to culminate in the greatest king coming through the line of Judah. And if God in his mercy can take somebody who starts so terribly and work through their family and work through their descendants through his grace... And his mercy. He can do the same for us. No matter where you're at. We turn. We repent. We restore relationship with God. And look at how he can restore and, uh, and bless and use those individuals. We see that here. And, and even just in those numbers. 76,000 of them. And 500 going in. So yes, it started terribly. But it doesn't end terribly for Judah. Judah. They're the righteous, they stay, they remain faithful to God for the longest of time. What about Nadab and Abihu? What about that? What, what good comes out of that? How is God's grace seen? You think about it. It says that in, in there, Nadab and Abihu, verse 61, died when they offered strange fire before the Lord. And then it gives the numbering of them uh, that, that's there. And, and you have that, but what do we know? about them. The next verse, 63, they were numbered by Moses and Eliezer the priest. There's still a faithful leadership that's coming out of that family. Yes, Nadab and Abihu blew it, big time. But that didn't mean that just because brothers blew it, that the next brother had to follow suit. Eliezer became this this righteous priest and then his son, even again, we see the righteousness of their kindred, Eliezer, the faithful high priest after Aaron. Ithamar, a guy you don't hear a lot about, but he's the faithful guy in the behind the scenes, making sure the tabernacle's moving, making sure everything's going well, making sure he's overseeing a lot of different things, but he's actively involved. You just don't hear a lot about him and, and how blessed, how encouraging is that? You might say, well, there's not a lot that I do and people don't really see what I do for the Lord. Being faithful, God blesses. Remain faithful. Maybe you're like Ithamar, and that's okay. Phineas, the grandson of this family, he's the one who zealously stays the plague because he goes out and he skewers. Eliezer didn't doing the same thing earlier. There was this righteousness in the family. God still blessed this family that goes through. And he still graciously, what does he do for Israel? He provides leadership for them. So much so that now Phineas, he says declaratively, the the, the high priestly line is coming through you, Phineas, because of your zealousness, your righteousness, back in chapter 25. So you see all of these different gracious dynamics of the Lord that that occur here. And you have all these smooth transitions. God's grace will always provide godly leaders for God's people. There's moments of transition that get nerve-wracking, but God's grace is sufficient. He will provide the leadership that we need in this church, in other churches who are looking, in other mission fields, as the missionaries are praying for other workers. God's grace will provide the leadership necessary for God's people. What about that next generation? What about at the end when it says, oh, there's no one else there? Did you notice the last verse of the chapter? Such a wonderful verse for two people but I believe a number, also a wonderful verse for us. Look at what it says. There was no one left save Joshua and Caleb, for the Lord had said of them, they shall surely die in the wilderness, talking about the other, other individuals, and there was none left a man of them save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. God kept his word, his promises to Caleb and Joshua back in Numbers 14. You will go in. You will be there. Everybody else, they've seen all of their kindred die. And yet, God does not waver on his faithfulness to Joshua and Caleb. He says, You are going forward. You are still here. You are the only ones left, other than Moses, who will obviously not enter in. But Joshua and Caleb, you're the new leadership. You're the Joshua, will be. Caleb, you're the faithful man you're going to go in. And God looks and says, my grace is poured out on the faithful. My mercy, you did not die. You did not experience this wrath because you faithfully followed me. What a living reminder to the people of Israel. Every time the new generation walks around and sees Joshua and Caleb, what are they reminded of? Wait, these are the faithful guys. These are the ones who stood. Everybody else has died. The sin has impacted my family. The death of the individuals has impacted our family. But those two, they remain faithful to God and God bless them. What amazing grace. What abundant mercy poured out on those two individuals. And I want that faithfulness and the blessings poured out on me. As they prepared to walk into the wilderness and into the promised land, they realized, yes, God deals justly with the unfaithful. There are all those warnings. God deals justly with those who are unfaithful. But don't miss out. God blesses the faithful with great inheritance, with great blessings. He says there's a promised land, heaven's coming. Stay faithful. Don't incur the wrath. Don't incur the judgment. Avoid. Listen to the warnings. Heed them. Stay faithful to me. Because as I, you stay faithful to me, I will bless. How can they do that? Why would he do that? Because it's that hope. In the midst of the journey, the inheritance, the blessings of God get us through the difficulties. It really reminds me of a wonderful passage. Lamentations chapter 3. Read, read along with me as I read. Just follow along on your screen. Look what it says. And I, and I put it in the ESV because it just has a little bit different take and a little understanding, but you're familiar with some of this. Look what it says. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Jeremiah is just, he's exhausted. He, I can't go on anymore. Remember my affliction, my wa- wanderings, The wormwood and the gall, the bitterness, the struggles in my life. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. It is just, my life is just feels oppressive and difficult. But this I called to mind and because of what I'm calling to mind, I therefore have hope. What does he say? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation, the deliverance of the Lord. Jeremiah says, Life is hard. The journey is difficult. But when I keep my eyes focused on my God, on the inheritance, on the blessings, on who he is, his great faithfulness, his mercies that are new every morning and they do not cease, his abundant grace, Jeremiah said, that gives me hope. That in the midst of a wilderness, I can look forward to, to the blessings of God. And I can trust in his faithfulness and his provisions and his providence and his protection because he is God. He is my portion. He is, as First Peter says, he is my only hope. My hope is in Jesus. My hope is in God that they will carry me through the hard times and I look toward them, and I focus on them, Lord willing, it helps me to stay faithful. Because I want to experience God's love, His mercy, His faithfulness, and His blessings. Not His chastisements. Not His judgments. Because we know sin will be judged. But we know that God blesses the faithful. So Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to not only be faithful, but to enjoy your faithfulness, to enjoy your mercy and your grace. Lord, we thank you for who you are, and Lord, thank you that you are our portion. Thank you for this passage of Scripture that oftentimes we just quickly gloss over because it's just a bunch of numbers. But Lord, help us to realize it's your Word. It is holy. It is inspired. It is inerrant. It is authoritative, and it is for us. Help us to apply it and live it. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks so much. Have a great day.